everyone's favorite Welsh theologian returns. Listen in to hear the spinners talk with Dr. Derek Thomas about a whole slew of topics. Principally, they ask him about sin in the life of pastors. Is it truly authentic to be vaguely vulnerable from the pulpit? How do pastors keep themselves accountable? Listen to some of Dr. Thomas's wisdom on this issue and hear what a Welsh karaoke bar sounds like. This is Mortification of Spin with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird, a weekly podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Keep listening after the podcast for a free MP3 download. You are listening to The Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And we're really glad that you joined us. We're trying to get out and have new experiences. And you could say our latest uh, location has provided us with a unique experience. We are in, of all places, a Welsh karaoke bar. Um, Obviously, given the fact that it's Welsh, it's not the most cheerful place in the world. Um, and uh, but but I find that some of the some of the music is is decent. Lots of Tom Jones uh, for some reason. Um, What's up, Pussycat, and um, that that kind of thing. And Delilah. So, yeah, Delilah. Um, uh, so it, it seems to be kind of a one note sort of an experience. But uh, the patrons seem to be having a good time, as much as Welsh patrons can have a good time. Anyway, uh, what what do you all think about our surroundings here? I thought Amy's rendition of a Dancing Queen that she did a few moments ago was uh, was very moving. I saw a couple of uh, former miners uh, crying in the front row. <laughs> the, the the tears making furrows in the uh, in the, the coal, coal dust on no, their faces. Reminiscent of a George Whitfield revival. Exactly. Reminiscent of a George Whitfield revival. Exactly. There was that slightly embarrassing incident, Todd, though, when you were asked to sing One Woman Army and objected to it on the grounds that it uh, broke biblical teaching. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I, w- I was I was there. I'm, I'm I appear to be the only person in Presbyterian life that uh, that thinks it's inappropriate to send our wives and daughters into combat. Well, it's true. Most Presbyterians do read the Bible, so uh, <laughs> that is. Uh, and I'm hoping later I'm going to do my uh, my classic rendition of Two Out of Three Ain't Bad" by Meatloaf, which is kind of my apology for having you on the podcast. Good, uh, good. I'm happy about that, Carl. That's um, that's good. Why we we have a guest with us, Carl? Why don't you uh, tell everybody? about Yes, our guest? we have we have a guest. With us. The reason why we're in Wales is that we are uh, fellowshipping today with one of Wales's uh, most famous sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I often think of this man as the the Peter Frampton of the Reformed world. The real tragedy is that he doesn't even know who Peter Frampton is and how <laughs> flattering that comparison may be. Last time he was on, we de- declared that he was the, the greatest uh, Welsh theologian since Pelagius. Yes. Uh, I think I'm actually willing to grant him even greater status than Pelagius now. <laughs> I would it prefer is, Frampton over Pelagius, yes. Indeed. Uh, Pelagius was not so good on the guitar solos as, <laughs> as Peter. And I think actually Peter was a better theologian on the whole. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, it's a real pleasure to welcome back uh, our old friend, Derek Thomas. I wonder if it's a pleasure for him. Look, I do know... (laughs) 
I do know who Peter Frampton is. He he plays the harpsichord in <laughs> the Orchestra of the Age of the Enlightenment. I, so I do know who he is. Fantastic. I've been aced on that one. <laughs> well played. Uh-huh. Well, it's great to have you with us, Derek. I believe you stood us up last night to go to a baseball game. Is that no, correct? No, I went to the Philadelphia Orchestra oh. for, for uh, Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was good. <laughs> well, we now, heard some he good music contem- last night, too, didn't we, we guys? Oh, we, we sure did. did. We did. What, now, what, was he a, a, a contemporary of Peter Frampton? He lived in Sandbar, Pushkwingis, Gogarachwindrobos, Sandasilio, Gogogoch. That's easy for you to I say. <laughs> Tom's, Tom's wiping the spit <laughs> off his face at that point. <laughs> I actually love the Welsh language, so um, I, I... Well, it is, it is the language of heaven. <laughs> so you you need to get used to it. So does yeah, everyone there, does everyone sound as if they're complaining in heaven? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are no vowels in the in the Welsh language, are there? I mean, just all it's basically strung together consonants, isn't it? Well, pretty much. <laughs> well, pretty <laughs> much. expectoration, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of gutturals. Yeah. Um, so w- one of the reasons why we like to have Doctor Thomas on with us is he does. He, he is a good sport, and actually, right now I'm a bit reeling because I, I was actually feeling very good about you. Dr. Thomas, because I, I pictured you at a baseball game last evening, and now I'm, I, I don't really quite know what to do, realizing that you actually weren't at a baseball the, game. The baseball game m- may transpire later. Oh, okay. Not today, but my, my wife is the baseball I aficionado. See. I see. Now, they don't play Wagner, typically, at ba- or, or Mahler. Uh, not until after the seventh inning. Okay. <laughs> um, when when there's no more beer, they might they might sing some <laughs> the ride of the Valkyries, but but not before the seventh inning. Let me ask you this, um, because I actually enjoy listening to both Wagner and Mahler. I'm not an aficionado, but I I have CDs from both of them that occupy my car periodically. So my question is though, should I feel guilty for enjoying Wagner? Actually, that's one reason why I like you more than I do Carl. Um, it's a guilt thing. Though, so I, I did get a text from Carl once that he was traveling from somewhere through England on the M1, I think it was, and he was listening to Goethe Demerung. Oh, or maybe, actually, the, maybe the entire Western ring. Pennsylvania, and I listened oh. to the ring cycle there and back, the whole thing. The whole thing. That's, uh, that's impressive. Yeah. Well, I, I ask about Wagner because basically didn't he provide the soundtrack for the, for the Third Reich? <laughs> you know this is where that's a yes by the way uh, this is <laughs> this is where you you need a robust uh doctrine of common grace <laughs> uh, because like peter frampton who i i you know he, he may play the harpsichord well but <laughs> he, he was a cad <laughs> and uh and wagner certainly was uh, although he was he was introduced at the, the Philadelphia Orchestra last night as Wagner, which, which, which kind of threw me. Uh, this oh, I love Americans. Rich They're Wagner. so well-read and informed on cultural issues. Um, well, that, that leads right up really into our, our discussion on sin, I think, at this point. If you pronounce Wagner, Wagner, it is a sin issue, isn't it? Well, it says something about your cultural upbringing if, yeah. you, if you do but um, heart to heart and Stephanie Powers comes to my mind when I hear <laughs> Wagner yeah boy wow that's going way back Carl um, so uh, what do we want to uh, I mean you know we've had enough fun uh, poking at, uh, at Dr. Thomas we actually have a, 
<laughs> a rather sobering topic we want to unpack a little bit uh, in relation to pastoral ministry, specifically um, pastors and sin, because pastors do sin. Um, Dr. Thomas is not only a teacher of pastors, he is a pastor himself. Um, so, uh, Carl or Amy, how do we want to, uh, to begin? Well, first of all, Derek, uh, it, there's a big vogue. It's very much in vogue at the moment for pastors to be transparent and authentic. Those are the kind of cliches that are used. And often that means, uh, it's actually a phrase that Amy taught me a, a while back. Um, I don't know what it means, but it sounds kind of cool. Uh, making yourself vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and doing that in the pulpit. Carl does a lot of that. I mean... I know that both Derek and myself, we're very authentic and vulnerable people when we're in the pulpit. Can I, can I show you my tattoo now? <laughs> Once I finish my skinny latte, you can show me your tattoo. Just to prove I have a background. Yeah. What do you think about pastors sharing their weaknesses in the pulpit? To what extent is that appropriate? To what extent can it be harmful and counterproductive? You know, Paul himself shows his past. He talks about himself as being the chief of sinners, so he doesn't try in any sense to uh, to forget the past. Uh, and I and I do think I, I do think that there has to be you know the 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 word, and it becomes a cliche word, but authenticity, whatever that means. Uh, but but I do think that we all struggle with hypocrisy of of being one thing in public and another thing in private. And you know the person, and and it and it may be ourselves, uh, who who speaks a good word in the pulpit, but then is you know horrible to their wives and children. And uh, uh, so authenticity in that sense, I think, is important. Um, you know, I think we want to talk about. Um, pastors and and how do they keep themselves accountable? You, you know, there's a sense in which when you're preaching, uh, that that you want to get out of the way. You you mm-hmm. you know, the famous definition of preaching um, that that uh, that it's truth through personality. Um, Phillips Brooks, and and there's there's a sense in which that's true. I think that that definition is is adequ- is inadequate as a definition of what preaching is. But but it does underline the fact that that the person behind the words um, there's a there's a shadow that's cast on the wall behind, and and it and it's you, uh, and. Uh, you know, I think of McShane's words that the people will will take almost anything from you as long as they think that you actually love them, mm. um, which is which is another indication of 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 something that's authentic. Um, but how do you know? In one sense, when I'm preaching and, and when you're preaching, you 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 want the word to be everything. You want Christ to be everything. I preach not myself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, so, so I, I don't want to be talking about myself all the time. And actually, you can talk about yourself. You know, I often think today. I, I mean, I, I wish, I wish I could preach in a T-shirt. 
and jeans. I mean, I wish I could do that. I don't look good in t-shirts and jeans, so so it's a kind of wish. Neither does Todd, but it never <laughs> stops. It doesn't I have stop to me. Say. But but uh, you know, when you when you live in South Carolina, as I now do, and the temperature you know is is almost in triple digits, uh, who in their right mind thought it would be a good thing to wear a suit or even worse a robe uh, to preach? Um, but but. The the whole the the whole dress thing and you know you've got to drop fifty pounds now. I, I remember speaking to a church planter recently and uh, I asked him, you know, what were the what were the major requirements of being an effective church planter? Well, number one, he had to drop you know thirty five pounds. Uh, that doesn't then, seem very authentic. <laughs> and then and then, believe it or not, I mean, he was he was being terribly serious about it. But uh. you, you need a tattoo. Uh. Because it shows that you have a past. Yeah, actually, it shows you have a present more than it does <laughs> a past. But but um, it, it was fascinating how you know how I mean, use an old-fashioned word. I mean, how worldly the whole thing right. was mm-hmm. as an approach to to uh, to ministry. Did he mention body fat percentage? <laughs> at all? Well, it was about the look, though. That there was a certain look. The trappings of personality right. were becoming much more and, important. And the look was, you know, lean. Yeah. Fit, um, you know, maybe maybe red meat once a week, but definitely eating a lot of uh, greens. <laughs> uh, you know, running. Um, you know, in the gym every morning. I I've been in a gym once in sixty years. <laughs> I I hate gyms. I, I don't like what goes on in there. I don't like the smell in there, and I I. I don't like being around naked men. I mean, I'm sorry. I need to hand you over to Max, my you, personal you know, trainer. So there's nothing with. about gyms that, that's attractive to me. If I got to go to the gym, I, I'm going to have to change at home and then go home in my sweaty clothes and, and shower at home. I just, I just can't Well, do it, it seems like we've moved from one image that a pastor is supposed to look like, maybe, um, maybe this new, quote-unquote, authenticity um, that's really just kind of prepackaged, is rebelling against this pastor who looked and appeared holy and then, you know, come to find out that there's all this sin in their lives. Mm. And then so now we've moved to this this look that um, I'm just a regular guy, yeah. a regular cool guy at that. Mm. But um, Who's in touch with his inner femininity. Yeah. Who can mm-hmm. who can weep on He's command? Vulnerable. That, that is Todd and myself <laughs> to a team. Low body fat, eat greens, in touch with the and, feminine and, side. And, and weep well, uh, freely. And I also wonder, um, you know, pastors are called to be above reproach. And I wonder how hard it is, since you are held to a higher moral standard, to then form the kind of friendships with people in your church um, that would be good natural forms of accountability. And and good ways to um, be encouraged in holiness and exhorted in holiness. Um, because, you know, there's this one sense that you're holding this office, and then there's, you know, you as a person, and you're to be above reproach in, in both. You know, it's one, it's one of the things I think I have um, benefited from uh, being in a team rather than being a solo minister. I was mm-hmm. a solo minister for 18 years, and and... It was tough. It, it was very tough. I, I am a Presbyt- I've always been a Presbyterian, so I do think that ministers can and should form relationships with their elders. And I was, I was actually very close to one of the elders, not, not in a favoritism kind of close, but it, it was actually an accountability closeness. Uh, and I think that's what 
that's that's one certainly a benefit of having elders in the church. You you are you are fellow elders, and if we're Presbyterians, the the equality uh, of the eldership. And uh, you know, I may I may have a a little label that says teaching elder and ruling elder. I'm not sure Paul would know what those two things are, but but um, but I, I think being in a team ministry where there are you know, five, six, or seven ministers, you know, or even two, uh, does does mean I think uh, something very valuable in terms of you can't work that close to somebody day in day out and not get to know that person and not see see them at their worst as well as their best. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, everybody has an off day. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're all allowed one off day a week, but how are you in that off day? <laughs> I, I mean, are you are you in in such a way that you have to be pulled aside and say, hey, you know, I, I need to say something to you. Mm-hmm. I, we need a Jesus moment, come to Jesus mm-hmm. moment. And um, I, I've, I, have, I have really seen the benefit of being able to work alongside someone and to make myself, and actually just say, say to some of my fellow pastors, you know, I, I want the relationship to be such that we can be honest with each other. Um, would you ever confess to sins in the pulpit? I, mean, I was told some time ago, never ever as a minister uh, acknowledge that you struggle with lust in yeah. the pulpit because that sends a green light signal to certain women who might be in the congregation, for example. Yeah. What sort of well, advice would you yeah, give to, no, I to, would not. to young ministers on I, that? I would not. I mean, you must be incredibly naive to think that anyone doesn't struggle right. to some degree with yeah. lust. Right. But you know, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a, an 86-year-old lady out there somewhere who doesn't struggle with lust. I'm, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm sure there, there's a Mother Teresa out there somewhere. But to be honest, everyone struggles with lust. E- even Jesus was tempted. You know, I do. I do think. I do think that the woman of Samaria episode is a is a moment of temptation, hmm. from which he emerges without sin. Uh, and it's 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 very very important to me that he was tempted in every point right. like mm-hmm. as we are yet without sin um but i am not an advocate that all of my dirty laundry needs to be paraded before everyone there there may be settings mm-hmm. uh, a men's bible study on a thursday morning that i teach i i know these men i've been with them now for 3 years I know some of their struggles. We, we, you know, I do tend to hear some stuff that I definitely wouldn't hear in another context, and I, and I think that context is different. Um, but in the pulpit with uh, with families and children and and uh, so on, no, I I I do not. Right. Uh, in thinking about the qualifications uh, for overseer, and Amy mentioned that's th- this issue of of being above reproach. Um, how would you differentiate? Because there's a sense in which all Christians are called to be above reproach. We're all called away from sin. We're all people who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And yet, there seems to be something special about this call to be above reproach for the pastor. How would you differentiate, or, or would you, this call to be above reproach for the pastor as maybe something that's in a different category? Or, or would you see it that way? Well, certainly historically, I, I think something of a change has taken place in the last 
15 or 20 years that, that I discern. Um, you know, you would have in the past certainly said that anyone thinking of the ministry, say, or, or define, define, that, define that broadly mm-hmm. if you want, but, but they, w- they were to be, to be those who demonstrated certain marks of godliness mm-hmm. um, that distinguished them from other Christians. I think today, and, and perhaps with a, an emphasis on, on, I don't know, the, the emphasis on sanctification that, that is kind of passive and, and quietist, the, the kind of the, the view of sanctification that says just realize your justification, right. that, that th- there is no distinction then between godliness and greater godliness we're all it's all a level playing field and and in order in fact to maximize what grace and justification means hey throw out some horrendous sins every now and then because it only magnifies my grace the grace that i've received and 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 my justification my status uh, in christ and i'm not sure if that's a part of it. it it certainly it certainly one of the issues that that I that I detect today, and um, and with it, I think comes less of an emphasis on the need for for godliness that, that is palpable and measurable in the Christian ministry. I think about that tattoo look again, and I think maybe that can be an attempt to, to measure some things. Like you have this tattoo on your arm and you say, this is my rebellion, this is my sin, here's a symbol of it. But then it kind of disguises um, you know, the real stuff that could be going on in your heart. And then you have this um, trained body and you can say, I'm a disciplined person on the outside. And so a lot of times I think we're, this new church planting mentality is, is sending these outward messages but ignoring the sin that's in here. But I, I wonder, too, if you're, you want to be above reproach, you want to show this, you want to give this example to your congregation, but then you want them to, you want to be approachable. And I think that's another part of that look. Um, how can you then be approachable so that when someone is struggling with a certain sin, they don't feel like, um, you're just going to judge them and look down on yeah, them, but that, that your they can holiness get real is counseling. so complete that somehow, right? You like you, you do need to convey yeah. this. I'm still in the middle ordinary of my sanctification. Guy thing yeah, as well. but there's an aspect of holiness, you know, in both Hebrew and Greek. I think that is both that is both intimidating on the one hand mm. and attractive on the other. Mm. There's a beauty of holiness. Mm. Um, you know, holiness in one sense is intimidating. Uh, and it and it's kind of repelling, but it's also attractive. There's mm-hmm. something there's something about holiness, for which we were made, that attracts us. I think so. It's a dual thing, and it's not one or the other. Uh, and I do think, yeah, I do true. think that I want sometimes to be around godly people, mm-hmm. in, in in a sense that sometimes you know I can think of names that of people that are that are. That I think are really godly people, but and they sometimes intimidate me, um, and yet they attract me. At the same time, I want 
I want to be around them. I want to learn from them. I want the aura of that godliness to fall on me and motivate me too. So I think mm, I think a there's, a, there's a yeah. twin track here. Yeah, that's really good. I'm, and, and obviously you were talking about Carl, right? Yes. <laughs> I was flattered to him as I was describing those terms. I said that. <laughs> I want you know, my aura to fall on you, Darren. <laughs> and so, and, and I, that's really helpful. And, and I think pro- pro- because I, I find that struggle in me uh, and, and I, I find it closely uh, connected to where I am on a, on a scale of repentance <laughs> Uh, that that the further I am from repentance at any given moment in my life, the more repellent holiness is. Mm. But at the same time, the attractiveness of holiness tends to draw me um, towards repentance when my stubborn heart doesn't want to. Um, I think those are helpful categories. Quick question, Derek. Just uh, um, adultery in the pastorate. Is there any way back for a pastor who's committed adultery? Yeah, that's a really tough question, and it's a very you know serious question, and sadly one that both of us have known um, friends of ours, and and if we're honest, you know there there go I, but for the grace of God. Um, yes, I, I I think there can be. Um, it would have to be. It would have to be. A very very unique relationship uh, with the with the, you know if, if if that adultery had caused divorce and so on I, I I don't know I mean I think then then perhaps not it's going it's it's going to be re- very messy but if but if that adultery had been dealt with properly and forgiven and and to see a husband and wife uh, publicly th- through enormous struggles uh, emerge, Christ-like and godly at the end of it, you know that could that could demonstrate. I mean, I, I just think that that could be very effective in in ministry. Have you ever seen that happen? No, no. Mm. I was going to say, I think uh, it might be the one point where perhaps I'm more conservative than you theologically there. But that's John Armstrong's book. I was very convinced by convicted by John Armstrong's book, The Stain and Stays. Yeah. yeah, but it is an area where. People disagree. The, right. You know, confessional Christians right. can legitimately disagree on the answer to that question. And even Derek, in your answer, you're—it's almost as if you're speaking hypothetically because I can't think of a situation like that. I, I suppose it's possible that it's worked out like that in some cases. Well, but. you know, we we live in an age where divorce is much more accessible in the church than it used to be. So, so the the issue escalates very quickly mm-hmm. in our. In, in our time yeah. than it yeah. used to. Well, on that very somber note, we will bring this uh, show to a close. It's always good to shelter from the rain in Wales in a karaoke bar. I can move forward now and sing uh, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad by Meatloaf. <laughs> but for those of you leaving the program at this point, uh, direct you to our website, mortificationofspin.org, a casual conversation about things that count. So it just remains for me to thank Derek Thomas for giving him his valuable time to join us on the show. My co-hosts, uh, Todd and Amy, and uh, we'll try to see you next time. <laughs> Land of my fathers, give me a break. <laughs> Oh, <laughs>
This has been Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Remember to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can download a free MP3 of a sermon by Derek Thomas entitled, The Word of God and Sanctification. Mortification of Spin is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Alliance ministries include Reformation21.org, the Bible Study Hour, and events held from Florida to Sacramento. To learn more about the Alliance, visit AllianceNet.org or call 800-488-1888. We can only continue to bring you Mortification of Spin with your support. To make a donation, please visit mortificationofspin.org or call 800-488-1888. Please join the gang again next week and don't forget to download your free MP3 message. That's easy for you to say. <laughs>